All right, if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to that passage, Isaiah 51. As I said, this isn't technically one of the servant songs, uh, but it belongs with the songs of the servant because it's a, a call for us to trust him and to entrust ourselves to him, even as we continue to walk in the darkness of this present evil age. Look again how the, how the chapter begins. It, it begins with a call to listen up, listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. He, he's calling on those who, who trust the Lord, who profess faith in him. Even as we have done here this morning, he, he is calling on them to listen up. The prophet knows that we need to hear a word of encouragement. He knew that the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament needed this word. And he knows that, that God's people throughout the generations need this word. He, he knows that we find ourselves in a hard place. We find ourselves walking in darkness and therefore always tempted to lose hope. And so he calls on us to, to listen carefully to what he has to say. And what is this word of encouragement that he has for us? Well, we, we see at the beginning in the middle of verse 1. The prophet says, Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were Doug, you, you can see the image in your mind. He, he's calling on us to remember our origin story. He's, he's calling on us to remember the beginnings of our history, not our personal history, not when, when I was born so many years ago or when you were born, but he's calling on us to remember our history as the people of God. And he identifies the, the quarry that he has in mind. What does he say? He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. The prophet wants us to remember the story of Abraham and of Sarah. But, but what exactly is it that he wants us to see in their story? Well, again, he, he tells us in the second half of verse 2. He says, For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. You, you remember the story of, of Abraham and, and Sarah. You can read it in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord God said to Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, he said to this man, he said, go from your country and from your kindred and from your, your father's house. Go from everything that provided identity and, and security and, and prosperity. Leave it all behind, the Lord said, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This was God's call. This was, this was God's promise. He called him to leave his family behind, to leave his, his homeland, to go to some unknown land, simply because the Lord called him, promising that he would make him into a great nation. And when he did this, when he, when he called Abram, when he called Sarah, they had no children. They were but one. And that's exactly the point. That's, that's exactly what Isaiah wants us to remember. You see, Ab uh, Isaiah wants us to remember that, that what God did for Abraham is what he will do for his people. God did for Abraham all that he had promised to do. Even though at the time when those promises were made, what God was promising looked to be beyond 
impossible. So much harder than touching your tongue to your elbow. Isaiah wants the righteous to remember. And and so he he wants us to remember the the full glory of this God who has made promises. And, And he wants us to remember the promises that this God has made. Remember, as I said, uh, at this point, the the righteous are walking in darkness. They are in exile. They they are oppressed. They are are slaves in a foreign country. Things are not good. And their future prospects do not look much better. And we know from our own experience that it would be so easy in such circumstances to renounce the Lord and to take matters into our own hands, to to begin to kindle our own fires, as the prophet said at the end of the last chapter. Haven't you been there? I I think you have. I I think we all have. We we think, well, well, God hasn't come through for me. Things haven't exactly gone the the way that I, I wanted them to do. If this is the best that God can do, then I need to explore other options. I need to seek my life elsewhere. We may not put it so bluntly, we may not put it so boldly, but, but we, we walk the path of that unbelief. We think that if we will just conform to the patterns of this world, or if we will just follow the, the wisdom of this world, then we, then we can save ourselves. If we will just run after possessions, or if we will run after pleasures, or if we will run after the, the praise of men, then in these things we will find life. We've all felt that temptation. When trusting the Lord and and obeying the voice of His servant doesn't seem to be working. When it doesn't seem to be working out the way that we would want it to. When following Jesus seems to be leading us into nothing but suffering and, and shame. It is all too easy for us to begin to think that we would be better off kindling our own fires going our own way, leaning on our own understanding. And it's precisely because of that temptation that, that we feel, that the, the people of Israel felt in, in the, these day, the days of Isaiah, that, that, that we need to hear this word of encouragement. He wants us to remember that God is the God who keeps His promises, even when it looks impossible. And because we need to hear that, he, he, he goes on for, for quite some time here. Look again how he begins in, in verse 3. He says, the Lord comforts Zion. He, he comforts all her waste places and, and makes her wildernesses like Eden, Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Hear what the prophet is saying. He's acknowledging that right now, at this moment, Zion looks like a waste. At this moment, it looks like a wilderness, like a a desert. There is no joy. There is no no gladness. There is only groaning and and mourning and and, and tears. And so the the prophet acknowledges that reality as he begins. He he acknowledges what what it feels like to be walking in the darkness, but he says the Lord nevertheless is the comfort of Zion. He will bring comfort to his people. He's not just saying, that, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that it turned out that way, or you know, I hope things will get better. He's saying, no, the Lord will bring comfort to his people. The wilderness will become like Eden. 
The desert places will become like the garden of the Lord. Again, the city will be filled with joy and gladness and thanksgiving and song. This is the hope. This is the the word of encouragement that Isaiah wants the righteous to hear. He wants them to know that though it now appears that that Zion is a wilderness, that it is a, a waste place, that it is a desert, it will be renewed God's original good intention for his creation will be realized beginning in Jerusalem and eventually reaching the ends of the earth. This is the promise that God is making. And notice how he he goes on to to describe this reality. Notice what what it means to have the, the deserts become like the garden of the Lord. He says that this means that that God's judging will be over all people. Now, let's be honest, that doesn't exactly sound like good news. <laughs> That's a little hard for us to, to understand why, why that would be encouraging. We, we don't tend to like the idea of being judged, and, and rightly so. Remember Psalm 130. What does the psalmist say? He says, Lord, if if you should mark iniquities, if you should keep track of our failures, if you should keep track of our sins and and then give to us what we deserve, none of us would be able to stand. It's the honest acknowledgement of the the psalmist. We, we don't like the idea of God's judging because we know we cannot withstand his judgment. But we have to understand that what God is promising here is more than, than just him sitting on uh, the, the, uh, the bench and, and rendering judgment against the criminals who are brought before him. To judge was not only to, to, to pass a sentence, but it was actually to, to rule. Think of the, the Old Testament judges ruling in Israel, bringing them out of oppression and establishing them again as, as a people in the land. That's exactly what, what God is, is talking about. Notice how he says it. He says, he says, the law will go out from me. And again, we, we struggle with the idea of law. We, we struggle to think of law as, as good. But, but try this mental exercise. Uh, imagine what the world would be like if everyone obeyed the Ten Commandments. Imagine how pleasant society and, and, and family and, and work could be if we didn't have to worry about people constantly breaking God's law. God's law is the blueprint for life as it is supposed to be, for life at its best, for, for life uh, with, with true flourishing and prosperity. And, and God is saying that my law is going to go out from me. And I will set my justice, he says, for a light to the peoples. No longer will will they walk in darkness, but my justice will be their light. Life will be renewed. Relationships will be renewed. Institutions will be uh, renewed. Individuals will be renewed. His justice will go forth, and it is drawing near. And this is his salvation. This is the salvation, he says that he has in store for his people. And it's, it's vital, I think, that we, that we see this. We have all kinds of ideas about what God's salvation might look like or what it even should look like. And if you don't think that you do, then just think about your daydreams. What is it that you daydream about? What is it that you think about when you think of life as you would like it to be? Oh, wouldn't it be nice if? Fill in the blank. 
I was talking to someone this, just this week, and they were talking to me about their, their dream of winning the lottery, to get them out of all of their, their money trouble, never mind the fact that most people who win the lottery don't turn out all that ha- happy. But, but nevertheless, the, the idea was that, that if I could just have enough money, then, then a lot of these troubles I'm experiencing would go away. If I could just have success at work, if I could just have the, uh, the, the prestige that I desire, if I could just have uh, the, the love of whomever. This is the, what we think salvation should look like. But Isaiah tells us that salvation looks like God reigning. We actually see this in the middle of chapter 52. I didn't read all that way, but, but look again at verse 7. He says, How beautiful on the mount, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, and who brings good news of happiness. So here is the good news. Here is the, the gospel. And what is that gospel? Your God reigns. Your God sits upon the throne. All things in submission to him. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what salvation looks like. It's not the way that we we naturally think. We, We naturally want our own will to be done. But this is what salvation looks like. This is how the the glory of God's original creation is restored. Think about it. In the beginning, God said, and it was. And because it was, as God said, it was good. That's the formula. When things are in accord with God's word, when things are in accord with God's design, they are good, and his people flourish. This is the way that it will be again at the end. You remember the image of, of there being no sea in the coming kingdom. If you're a beach person, that might make you sad. You might, you might wonder, why would there not be an ocean in the coming kingdom? Well, I, I don't think he's talking here about, about there being literally no sea, but remember what the sea represents. The sea represents creation before it is subdued. In the beginning, the waters covered the earth, and then God went to work forming and filling And that, for there to be no sea in the coming heavens, means that that work of of forming and filling, that work of uh, subduing the creation, that that work will be complete. No part of the cosmos will be left undone. God will bring all things. He He will spread the edges of the garden all the way to the ends of the earth. That's the image. Things will be brought back into accord. God's reign will be established. And what does that mean for us today? What, is it, what does it mean for us to, to think of creation in these terms, to, uh, to think of salvation as the subduing of all things, as of all things uh, under his will, of him reigning over the cosmos? Well, I think it begins to give us a, a vision of what this life is supposed to look like. It means that that we experience as much of heaven on earth as we can when we are submitted to his will and when we are working to bring that that sphere of his creation that that we have under our influence uh, in accord to his will. That's how we enter into uh, the the joys and the, the pleasures of his salvation. However, it also means that until he comes again, we will always be frustrated. We will always groan. We will always walk in some measure of darkness, seeing through a glass darkly, as the Apostle says. Why? Because there are so many aspects of this creation, so many aspects of this life that we simply cannot subdue. 
You can't control what other people do. You can't. I have this conversation with my kids all the time. You control you. <laughs> you can't control them. Yes, what they did was wrong, but all you can do is, is, is control your response to it. There, there's so much of this creation that you can't control. You can't control other people. You can't control creation itself. We've seen tornadoes rip across the, uh, the, the middle section of our country. We, we've seen storms. We, uh, we've seen a virus. There's, there's so much of creation that we cannot control. And if you're honest, there's so much of you that you cannot control. The good you want to do, you don't do. And the evil you want to stop doing, this you keep on doing. And so in this life, we, we cannot bring all things under His rule. We, we cannot subdue all things to His will. And that means that in this present evil age, we groan as we walk in darkness. But don't you see, that's precisely why this promise is so valuable. Because we can't bring the kingdom. We cannot establish it on earth as it is in heaven. We, we can strive, we can strain, we can work with all the energy that he supplies to, to subdue ourselves and to, 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 to bring his word to bear upon that little patch of the creation that we have some influence over. But we can't bring the kingdom. Our best efforts will always fall short. But our God is the God who does what seems impossible to us. He can bring the kingdom. And more than that, He will. He will establish justice in the earth. That is His promise. And He is faithful. He will surely do it. But not only will he establish justice on the earth, but when he does, it will be forever. We, we see this beginning in verse 6. Through the prophet, the Lord says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and, and look to the earth beneath. He's, he's calling our attention to this cosmos. He's calling our, our attention to the sky above and the earth beneath. And he, and he wants us to look at these things because we think of these things as permanent. We think of these things as, as stable. We think of these things as, as almost eternal. But he says, no, they're not. The heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. These things that you think are permanent, they are but like a, a garment that wears out, that's, that's eaten by the moths. What is permanent, what is forever, is my kingdom. My salvation will be forever. My righteousness, he says, will never be dismayed. The kingdom that, that God is going to establish, not only will it be perfectly good, it will be eternally good. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. Yes, it is undefiled by sin, and it will remain that way forever so that its glory never fades. Look again at verses 7 and 8. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So again, he's, he's speaking to the righteous. He's speaking to those who trust him, those who, 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 who believe in the Lord and want to follow his servant, but who are walking in darkness and therefore are, are discouraged. What does he say to them? He says, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Yes, they will reproach you. Yes, they will revile you. They will think that you are crazy for entrusting yourself to a, to a crucified Savior. It will look like foolishness to them. It will look like weakness to them. But fear not. 
Fear not and remember what God says. Those who kindle their own fires, those who go their own way, they will receive only torment. The moth will eat them up. But my righteousness, the ones who entrust themselves to me, they will never be dismayed. My kingdom will be forever. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave the righteous? Where does it leave those who who have believed on the Son, who have entrusted themselves to the servant? Where does this leave us? Well, I hope it leaves you longing. I hope it leaves you longing for that day. It's the the longing that we see expressed here beginning in in verse 9. I don't have time to to fully unpack it, but, but look again. The the people are calling on God to awake. Not that they think that he is asleep in some absolute sense, but they are are calling on him to put on his strength and come to their aid. Make haste, Lord, quickly come to my rescue. And as they they plead with God to act, as they plead with God to to bring to completion the good work that he has begun, they they remember his good works of old that they might be encouraged. They, They recount what he has done for them in the past. He is the one who cut Rahab to pieces. He is the one who who pierced the dragon. That's that's imagery that that references them, God bringing them up out of Egypt. And he dried the sea that they might escape. He he opened a way through the deep waters. They remember what God has done so that they can finally confess what they know He will do in the days to come. What does He say? The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. They plead on God to act at the same, even as they confess their faith in in the reality that He will act. This is, this is really what we do every Sunday when we gather for worship. We've been doing this Advent season, but it's, it's really what we do all the time. We, we remember what God has done, and we look forward to what He will do again, even as we express our sincere and earnest hope that He will do it quickly. Lord, come quickly. That's what the Advent season is all about. It's about that longing, that longing to see Jesus come again to bring to completion the good work that he began when he was born in Bethlehem so long ago. That little baby is the one who grew up to be Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who who laid down his life for his sheep. He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And therefore, because he has died, and because he has risen again victorious over death, we can wait with patience for his coming again. Because God has already done the impossible in raising him to life again on the third day. And he will not fail to do all the impossible things that he has begun. Notice what he says. He says, I am the Lord, your maker. I am the one who stretched out the heavens. I am the one who laid the foundations of the earth, and I will soon bring you your salvation. I am the Lord. You are my people. Yes, you have endured discipline. You You have drunk the cup of my wrath, but there's coming a day when I will take that cup out of your hands and I will give it to another. And I will pour out my wrath upon your enemies, upon the enemies of God's people. 
And therefore, you shall be dressed in beautiful garments. This is the promise of God. This is what God will do. He knows that right now, in this moment, we're in darkness. Right now, in this moment, we do not yet see all things in submission to Him. Right now, in this moment, we groan because we hurt, because following is hard. And yet, He says, do not lose hope. Remember your father Abraham. He was but one when I called him, and I have made him into a great nation. I am the God who does impossible things. And all the impossible things that I have promised, I will surely do. And because I will surely do them, because the one who calls you is faithful, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you this morning. We come before you amazed at what you have done and eager to see what you will do. Father, in this present moment, we do walk in darkness. We, we walk in the darkness of this present evil age. We do not yet see all things in submission to your Son. We, we cannot bring the kingdom ourselves. And in our weakness, we sometimes wonder if you ever will. But Father God, we trust that you will keep your promises. We trust that you are the God who does impossible things for your people. And so we wait for you. Wait for that day when you will bring to completion the good work that you have begun. We ask you to strengthen us to stand firm until that day. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.